And welcome to Planks and Politics. Planks and Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CSSS in Peterborough, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. Joining me in the studio tonight is our guest panel on employment. We have Paul Bennett, uh, who's the DTBIA board chair and property owner, Hussein Darshi, uh, entrepreneur, freelancer, and transit advocate, Monique Benito, um, Peterborough Public Health and the coordinator of the Precarious Employment Research Initiative, Stuart Harrison, CEO of the Peterborough Chamber of Commerce, and Alyssa Paxton was going to join us, but she's unable to do so, so we are four. Before we start unpacking all the complexities that are bundled within the complex issue of employment in Peterborough, Peterborough I need to acknowledge that... Uh, Peterborough is not alone or unique in terms of our employment situation. If we were holding this discussion in Thunder Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, Windsor, Kitchener, Niagara, Kingston, or Cornwall, we'd be touching on many of these same dynamics, and I've listed them out here. Please add in, if I'm forgetting any, the shrinkage of the Ontario manufacturing sector, uh, the disappearance of unskilled entry-level full-time jobs, the impact of new technologies, including advanced robotics and AI, changes in demographics, for example, uh, boomers working longer, retiring later, women in the workforce, uh, the decline of full-time jobs and the rise of precarious employment, increased globalization, international supply chains, etc., and the mismatch between the skill sets sought in job postings and the skill sets on offer from job seekers. I'm not suggesting we ignore these larger dynamics. Obviously, they are alive and influential here in Peterborough. But it's important to acknowledge that these dynamics might present themselves with maybe slightly different nuances here in our local economy. So, just to start, precarious employment, it's the new normal. True, uh, full-time jobs can still be found, but the part-time temporary contract positions are much more common. It's a truism to say, that, uh, as Monique and her work at the Peterborough Public Health would confirm, that precarious employment has huge impacts on public health. Part-time work, temp work, contract work is part of the, uh, the norm for new graduates entering the workforce. And during recent elections, Peterborough, uh, the federal one in 2015, provincial municipal last year, candidates in the 20s and 30s, uh, I'm thinking of Monsef, Conway, and Terrian, were criticized for not having employment histories that included full-time employment. Uh, I have to feel that uh, such criticism is based on a sort of 1970s worldview that was based, on, in turn, on full-time employment. Those jobs are simply not on offer to the same level uh, as in the past. Also, political bias. I need to acknowledge that how one sees the issue of employment depends very much on the political lenses through which one sees our community. For example, a public sector union member is going to see the issue of precarious employment quite differently from a small business owner. Many small businesses could not survive without part-time temporary employees, uh, the just-in-time workforce. There's no right and wrong in this dynamic, or is there? Younger members of the precarious uh, workforce tell us their costs of living exceed the salaries they are offered. Large student debts hang over many of them. Their salaries make that payment uh, repent very challenging. And so on. Anyway, questions to consider. Let's start off with what, if anything, can governments 
do to create job growth? The assumption here is that the public sector does not create jobs. Is that true? Public sector job creation depends on increased government spending. Peterborough and the rest of Ontario has currently experienced the impact of decreased government spending, jobs and health, social services, and education. So, what can government there is body language in the studio, pointing, shrugging, <laughs> don't ask me. Uh, so this is Stuart. Um, the, uh, there's no question that government creates jobs. The, uh, we were just looking at a publication that just came out uh, with Peterborough this week, just before we came on the air, uh, talking about the largest employers, and they're by far and away mostly uh, public, uh, public entities. So whether it's the university, the college, the hospital, uh, you know, essentially it's, it's public payroll. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, government plays a key role, and business certainly works very closely with government uh, to what we call create the conditions for employment. And that essentially comes down to regulation. And so, you know, I think in the end there's a, there's a critical role for a government to play, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal, and it is essentially uh, a role of regulation. Uh, so that's, that would be my opening comments. Sure, and, and friends in small business tell me you have no idea how much of a big deal it is for me as a small employer to set up a full-time job. <coughs> and benefits, costs, etc., etc. And so the trend towards temporary part-time contract doesn't come from thin air. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to add in on the, the precarious employment piece, I actually I think there's two sides to that too. I think a lot of people now actually like the idea of part-time work where they're not that idea of full-time, the you know, a job for life has definitely changed. And I can't remember what the stat is. It's something between six and seven jobs in a, in a career or life that people have now. Just because they, you know, they enjoy the, the, the difference, the type, different types of worlds they can work in, the different experiences they can have. So I, I think that's a really healthy thing too, because I think people get to experience a lot of new, new types of employment. Sure. That uh, obviously getting full-time employment is great, but I think it gets gets experience levels up in uh, in different types of people as well, which is good. Sure. Money. And having done some research on precarious employment, I, we saw that 63% of the people in Peterborough are either vulnerable or precariously employed. Most of those people don't want that kind of employment. There's also research that was done through Hamilton or McMaster in Hamilton where they specifically focused on millennials because there's a lot of assumptions that younger people want that kind of, they want the gig economy and they want different variety of work, but they, they too want stable and secure employment. And so, you know, I, I understand when you're a small business that you need to have some flexibility and you need to be able to, I think, respond to the demands of, of what the consumers want. Uh, from the other side, considering what that impact is on workers, it creates a lot of instability, a lot of insecurity. So you have people who don't have the levels of income to actually uh, give them the opportunity to actually go spend money in those businesses too, right? So there's, it's a double-edged sword. So rather than increasing public spending to create jobs funded by tax dollars, what could governments do to help the private sector create more jobs? What roles might government play in economy to help private sector do this? Or do governments have such a poor record of creating jobs that we want them to stay off the field? 
from a sorry from a private perspective, I think Stu hit on or Stu 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 hit on it in the sense that all the governments can do is set the table. I think at this point, right? Uh, whether it be from funding or funding or whatever it is, it uh, allows private companies to hire people. Now that doesn't mean that you have to give incentives for them to hire, but make sure the regulations are lower so that they they you know hiring people does become easier because there certainly are as years go on uh, the regulations become much more tough to do so. Right. We were uh, at Queen's Park, we meaning the, the Chamber of Commerce Network in Ontario. We have an annual advocacy day, and it was this past Monday. And the meeting that I was in was the Ministry of Economic Development, Job Creation, and Trade. And let me tell you, they hold a lot of portfolios uh, the, uh, that, that affect us directly here in Peterborough when it comes to job creation. And I was struck by a couple of things. First of all, the Deputy Minister had six of her assistant Deputy Ministers in the room. Mm-hmm. to meet with us. So she treated it very seriously. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just lip service to, you know, a bunch of lobbyists. Uh, so I was really impressed with the level of professional and mm, professionalism and also their 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 approach to policy. And when it comes right down to it, whether it's uh, whatever lobby group it is, whether it's a chamber network uh, or the ministry itself, it's policy focused as opposed to politically focused. So that was the first thing. Secondly, they've been given a directive by this current government to reduce regulation by 25%. So we're talking 117,000 individual regulations that govern business in Ontario, and they're talking, uh, the the goal is 25% reduction. Uh, The bill was actually just passed today in Parliament. Uh, The looking for it here on my notes, the Restoring Ontario's Competitiveness Act. It has some controversy, there's no question about that, but that's essentially the approach of this current government, like it or not, Um, but regulation when it comes to business, and I can certainly give you some examples, is is the number one um, deterrent to, uh, to growth. Great. Just to chime in, um, I think access is also a big thing that they should also improve because if you go to look at it, I mean, there are more than 4,000 or 5,000 people who do take transit, for example, and most of them have trouble accessing, you know, whether it's job uh, seeking services or actual employment because of, you know, the way the structure of the transit is at the moment. So that limits people, you know, if I have to go, if I have to spend 40 minutes going to, say, for example, a library to look out, look at, look for a job that becomes an issue, right? So creating access, making it easier for people on the ground level to be able to access those. Sure. So what do young job seekers need to understand about the Peterborough employment situation? How could they approach the market differently in order to find work? Well, I mean, it comes back to, I mean, because of the fact that I am in the innovation and entrepreneurship space, I say look at look at that as a viable option because right. I know a lot of people get scared, scared off by that or the fact that, you know, it's been glamorized in the media as something that, you know, the return is like a year in or like for something like that, but it's a lot longer. But change, changing the perception of that, but also... I think understanding that there is competition, there is heavy competition, and they need to set themselves forward. I mean, whether it's at school, whether it's doing projects at school, whether it's, you know, taking on summer jobs, whatever it is, just to kind of get that experience, it gives them a level up compared to just being fresh out of school. Sure. Paul. Uh, and, yeah, and, and to kind of follow up on that, too, I think uh, younger people these days need to realize that 
um, just to get themselves out in the community too. I think people sometimes have insecurities if they don't have the proper education or if they don't have a certain skill set. But I think a lot, especially now, there's a lot more to do with isn't just what uh, what letters you have to after your name. There's a lot more involved in that and just getting yourself involved in the community. And you know, Sam's a great example of getting out and meeting a lot of people and being involved in certain different organizations or groups. Um, you can show your skill set and you know become you know noticeable to different employers that way. Yeah, I, and I would say too that um, I mean for anyone, for any job seeker, that if you have an interest in a particular field, that go talk to the people who work in that field and get a sense of what are what are the what are the skill sets you need, um, what are the soft skills you need, not just the technical skills, and and just you know do some research on the ground, find out what's going on, and you know sort of to to your point too that um, it, it, it then means that you can get some exposure with some of the people. In, in the areas that you're interested in, too. Yeah, now, uh, full, full disclosure here, I, I do some, uh, I'm involved in the education sector a bit. I do some contract teaching out at Fleming. And when, well, my sense is, and tell me if I'm off base, but many students don't understand the importance of entrepreneurship and self-employment. For example, when I tell uh, my classes at Fleming that uh, if we had a reunion, and this is, these are uh, trades classes, vocational classes, students who are taking courses towards a some sort of vocational certificate. When I tell them that if we held a reunion 10 years post-graduation, that many of them will have run their own businesses, they stare at me in disbelief, as if I'm speaking Klingon or Martian. They say, no, no, no. They say, no, I'm here to get a certificate, and then I'm going to graduate and get a job. And I hate being the voice of Bloom, but that's not precisely how our our economy is working anymore. Am I off base? I think uh, Hussein probably has the best story here because he came to Peterborough to take a job and uh, it didn't work out. You wanna you wanna tell the story? Yeah. Um, basically, I came for a job because uh, that's. I was offered a job and I came in. Uh, I took an interview and basically the conditions that I was being asked to work under were not something that I could make. So basically they asked me to work to a certain time where, for example, transit didn't run. Uh, it would mean walking home 45 minutes and that wasn't something that I wanted to do in a new city. Uh, so that kind of forced me into thinking of other options and entrepreneurship and self-employment was one of those that just so happened to fall into place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I would weigh into, you know, I think there's a place for entrepreneurship and, and self-employment. I, I, I worry that it, it gets presented as a panacea. Um, it is a very precarious work to work on your own, um, and so and it can take a while before you can actually get, get yourself established. Uh, it takes a certain mindset. Not everybody has, I think, the the chutzpah to be able to do sure. that. And so we, we need to be able to find some balance between making sure we can support people who are interested in doing those kinds of things and, and helping them um, as much as we can, but recognizing that there will always be people looking for other kinds of work and more security. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah kind of going back to how you, <coughs> sorry, how you started out the whole thing, I, I think that kind of answers the, the point of it, is that there aren't the jobs. Right? So I think people go to uh, a university or college or any post-secondary, any type of education looking to come out and will get a job. But out of necessity, I think, as you're talking about, those students of yours are going to have to just start a business of their own simply because there aren't. And, um, you know, further to your point, hopefully 25% of those students start something and then get, provide jobs for the other 75% or whatever the, the you know, breakdown is. I'm not sure, but I think it more so than ever, it's a necessity, not necessarily because they're going to wake up one day and decide they're an entrepreneur. They're going to decide that if they don't control their own future, they're not going to have a right. profitable one. Sure. Um, I was at a meeting at Fleming uh, a few weeks ago, and it's a committee that meets, I believe, quarterly, and there was roughly 25 people uh, around the table. Um, 22 of them worked for the college or the university or the school board or the workforce development board. Uh, there was two business people and, and myself. Um, and and the point that I'm trying to make is not that it was – the point I'm trying to make is there was a lot of people around the room from a lot of different different uh, perspectives all trying to solve a problem that at the end of the two-hour discussion was was not solved. And, I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about it. So the point there is that I think it's incredibly nuanced, and it doesn't matter whether you're uh, a senior uh, who just wants, you know, part-time, uh, if you're someone just coming out of college or university or a skilled, uh, skilled trades or an, or an apprentice. Uh, or uh, Hussein moving to Peterborough to take a job and the bus service won't support it, so he has to start his own business. It's incredibly nuanced, and you have to look at examples like um, Flying Colors, for example, at the airport. Got in touch with Fleming College, and Fleming designed a training program specifically to train Flying Colors employees to work at, fly, at Flying Colors, yes. right? And that's that's an example, I think, of of how things have shifted. You're no longer training pipe fitters to work the rest of their life at GE. It's just so much more complex than I think anyone gives it credit uh, for. And the result is you get young people coming out of uh, university, college, high school uh, with certain expectations, and you get employers um, running a job ad uh, with certain expectations, hoping that someone who's properly trained shows up. And I think in the end, there's got to be movement in both directions. Right. Instead of somebody coming over the bridge, we got to meet in the middle somewhere. Right. Okay. Um, with students, I think it's also a perception of what they've grown up with. Um, coming from a non-Canadian cultural background, it was always, you must have a piece of paper, and that piece of paper looked like, you know, something prominent, which in today's world could be anything. But, you know, in those in, in, in our cultures, it was doctors, lawyers, yeah. um, engineers, that kind of stuff. But it's also the perception that the people who started businesses were much older. It was not right out of school. Yeah. And that was another thing as well. Yes, I, something I wonder is how, um, I don't want to use the word honest, but how how accurate, perhaps is a better term, are our colleges, our trends, even our high schools, about job prospects for various fields. For example, I know at Fleming, there are lots of people who take, uh, lots of students who enroll in police foundations, who, and because I happen to know a few officers uh, at the gym, uh, who, and I'm told they have no chance 
no chance in Ontario of ever being police officers. And yet, there they are. Uh, and Fleming, of course, I'm not accusing the hand that feeds me uh, <laughs> of disingenuousness. I mean, a, a lot of colleges in Ontario offer police foundations. Where are all these young graduates going to work? So, I mean, is there always, or what more could be done to make sure the education that's being delivered is being validated by what the marketplace needs? And I say that with uh, some of the degree in English. You know, I, I knew full well that wouldn't work, but, you know, I've made it work. But more at the college level. Yeah, I, I think for me, I, I, I'm, I think back to the time of my father when he was, you know, in his 20s and 30s. Uh, he had a grade 8 education. Yeah. Um, the assumption was back then that you could, they actually employers wanted you to come without a lot of training because then they could mold you to exactly what they want. Right. And in today's world, the sense I get is you have to come fully formed, have everything in, you know, in your back pocket ready to hit the ground running with not a lot of space for learning on the job. Um, you know, it, it makes me wonder, there are some of these programs where you're learning some great skill sets that are probably transferable for other positions and other jobs, but if you don't carry that the right name or of a particular role, they won't consider you. And so I, I, I'm not sure what the what the solution is, but I, I think that we need to have a little bit more play uh, in terms of who's coming to the to the table to be able to work. Yeah, apprenticeships uh, come to mind as you know somewhat of a. Uh, an appropriate example, um, there was uh, sort of a road show, pre-budget road show that came to Peterborough, and I was struck by one of the people who was there from Savage Arms uh, in Lakefield. And the presentation that he made uh, sort of brought people back to the days when GE had apprentices uh, right within the factory, and they were essentially apprenticing to work at GE, similar to what I was saying about, uh, about flying colors. Um, when you when you look at the apprenticeship ratios, for example, um, it's been improved dramatically over the last year because essentially they're all one to one, where they were as much as three to one. So that was a real barrier for uh, you know a, a Peterborough Electrical Company to have three journeymen in place before they could hire an apprentice. One apprentice mm -hmm. was essentially um, impossible, so they just didn't grow, and the jobs weren't there, and the apprenticeships. Were, were essentially being controlled by the College of Trades. So that's all been eliminated. I don't think it's a complete panacea. It hasn't been clean. Um, you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of adjustments establishing the College of Trades and now moving it back into the ministry. But the bottom line is that I think apprenticeships play a role. And I think that there has to be some flexibility uh, amongst the various trades and amongst all of the regulated professions because I think there's 115 different regulated trades from hairdressers on up, uh, and all of them have barriers to employment when it comes to someone who's looking for a job. And just to sympathize with you, uh, my daughter just graduated with a PhD in Scottish history. She's so <laughs> <laughs> also looking for work. <laughs> well, <laughs> it could be a very interesting future in your house. <laughs> I prepared the basement. <laughs> uh, 
Sure. Cool. Uh, kind, of, kind of to follow up on Stu's comments there and go back to your question itself. I went to school for e- at economics, and so I kind of always go back to supply and demand on everything. And I think, to your point, uh, schools are b- basically satisfying a demand right now. So they, you know, kind of to the same point as well, that right now it is kind of an expectation that you need to have a piece of paper or whatever it is to, to move forward in your life. You need that some kind of a professional education. Uh, if I was a, a betting man, I think that, you know, that demand is going to dwindle a little bit going back to kind of what, what Stu was saying about the idea of apprenticeships or there's a lot of the almost an on-demand education options out there now too. We have a client at uh, Venture North, have a, a company called Brain Station that does um, training that is, you know, likened to needs that you might have. So if you needed some business model training or some IT training, it's just you're taking courses, not a full three or four year um, education. You're getting skills that are, you know, required for a certain job. You're not spending three or four years to get, a, you know, a more you know, broad range education, you're getting more specific skills for specific jobs. I do want to push back on that just a little bit because I've heard, and this is anecdotal, I'm not an expert on what the the Trades and Technology Center at Fleming is actually offering as far as their, uh, you know, the students coming out of that program, but I've certainly heard from companies that they're not the employees that they're looking for. So I'm not sure that they're responding to demand uh, as much as they're responding to what's currently being funded. And I think that data, I think that data is the biggest weakness when it comes to uh, actually the entire issue of employment. And the ministry said this when we were at Queen's Park on Monday. Their number one problem is they actually don't know what's happening and where that disconnect actually is. They recognize that it's subtle and it's nuanced, but they don't know what to do about it. So we're not the only ones sitting around having a conversation. It goes right up to the senior bureaucrats uh, in, in the provincial government. Well, and the other thing I was going to add, too, is when we did the survey on precarious employment, we asked people about their level of education, and we also asked them the question of whether or not their education matched the educational requirements for their work. And by and large, it does, at least for the people we surveyed. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure where, where this thing is about there's a mismatch because it seems that the people that we surveyed at least two years ago had this, the, the training that they needed to do the work that they're being paid to do. Okay. And I think even to Stu's point, you mentioned like having um, you know companies in the city like Flying Colors actually be at the table and having those conversations earlier on with with schools to to create those programs because I find even and this is going a little bit back um, when mobile app development first came out, lots of universities and colleges were very hesitant to kind of jump on board to start training people because right. they were waiting for something to happen or waiting for it to to you know be expected of them to have that, but it's the smaller colleges that actually made it out alive because they started early. But yeah. having, having you know, companies, local companies on, on board with that kind of education, and it's all about location. I mean, um, I've, I've heard of a lot of students here who've moved to other cities because they can't find the work that they, w- they were educated for here, so they found it there. Vice versa, I've seen a lot of people come into Peterborough because they were careers here that they couldn't find, say, for example, in urban centers. Right. And I'm wondering how much are we seeing locally about uh, one of the, uh, I should have listed it among those macro factors at the beginning, of the mismatch between the jobs that employers, private sector employers, governments are seeking, the skill sets they're seeking and the skill sets that 
job seekers are bringing to the job market. And I'm thinking of uh, you know, software developers, uh, systems engineers, the people who put who who make all this technology work, including robotics. Now, my I have been given my scant reading of, of the business trends is that those jobs are going begging, like, you know, and. Canada is really not meeting those needs, and so we're looking for people from other parts of the world to move here and take those jobs. Meanwhile, our, our local institutions, uh, I shouldn't fault Peterborough's local, anyway, Ontario institutions are churning out graduates for whom there are no jobs. So, what's the fix here? I wish anyone wanted to grab that one. <laughs> it's interesting. I think there's been some really um, thoughtful points brought up about you know linkage between the local workforce and our, our post-secondary education um, institutes. One of the things that I've always been shocked about, and, and Stu might be the source for the number of this, is the retention percentage of uh, students that go to either Trent or Sir Sanford and how small it is. It was always shocking to me that that you know students choose Sir Sanford or Trent and they choose to come to Peterborough because they you know they obviously love the institution, but they probably love Peterborough as well, and the percentage of those students that we retain in Peterborough is such a small number, and it's two percent. I, yeah, I was going to say it's well below five, so yeah. it's such a small number. Um, but it, to your point, Bill, it, it's shocking that there isn't more of a a link between those institutions and then um, what our local workforce is making is made up of. But again, to Sue's earlier point, it, it probably does have a lot to do with the funding models that they they currently follow. Yeah, well, Sue, I'm stuck on that image painted for us of 25 people in a room and two business people. Yeah. And, uh, I, 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 you know, as I say, not, not to criticize planning, but what's the fix there? Get more involvement of the local business community? You know? I mean, if we were at a meeting of GBIA, uh, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the Women's Business Network, and we said, you know, to those assembly, uh, those assembled groups, what do you need young graduates to be able to do? What would they say? Yeah. Well, I think the frustration for all of us and, you know, the people around that table are, I mean, I'm talking about employers. It's our number one survey result is the difficulty in finding employees. And Monique is saying that, you know, those who are precariously employed appear to be properly trained. So the disconnect is somewhere in the communication between those two groups. I'll tell you a story. We got some funding from the provincial government about, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, um, and we essentially handed it over to the new Canadian Centre, and Michael van der Herberg went out, and we created this little thing called, it just was a logo. We didn't, it, was, it wasn't an office or anything. It was called the Workplace Integration Centre. And Michael went out and met with individual employers, and he ended up placing, through the new Canadian centers, so immigrants and, and uh, students, 72 jobs he created. Um, and it was simply by opening those doors and talking to people. And I've talked to Michael recently about it because we floated the idea past this government that maybe the situation requires a more nuanced approach, hands-on, people knocking on doors, making connections between those who are precariously employed and employers who are 
you know, have zero response to a want ad and, and bring them together, introduce them to each other. Those foreign students from Trent and Fleming are all registered at the New Canadian Centre, but it's not just the New Canadian Centre. There's a number of agencies, Trent Valley Literacy, for example, people with literacy skills who are also looking for work. Uh, there's there's a number of agencies that I think somebody could could work with and be that go-between between business and and uh, employers, and I just don't think it's as simple as listing an ad on Kijiji and hoping that somebody shows up or submits a resume. You know, you've tweaked my curiosity. What were what are some of the deficits that those employers uh, shared with you as to you know they're not seeing they're not getting the the sorts of job applications they want. Um, I was talking to a fellow the other day. Now, this is not, you know, one of the cream, cream of the crop jobs. They actually do document uh, processing and scanning of documents and archiving documents and that sort of thing. So it essentially involves removing staples from paper and scanning them into a computer. Um, uh, but he said when minimum wage uh, previously was... Uh, $12, $13 an hour, he was paying $14 an hour and never had trouble finding employees. And now that minimum wage is $14 an hour, he's paying $16 an hour and not a single not a single response to the ads. And he's run ads in a number of different ways in a number wow. of different locations and has had zero response. So that's one. And I mean, obviously, he's very frustrated. And there's probably people listening who would love to have one of those $16 an hour jobs. Who are equally frustrated, right? So, give me a call. I'll tell you what the name is. But you know, at the same time, uh, also was talking to uh, the construction exchange, and he was talking about how difficult it is to keep employees um, because he loses them to Toronto all of the time because Toronto pays higher wages. Well, I'll tell you what the answer to that is: pay higher wages. I mean, you're, you're, you have to compete, and if you're losing your employees to, you know, a reason that that's, that's that specific, and this is what I was talking about earlier, about coming halfway across the bridge, um, you've got to recognize that that's a problem you can actually solve. Right. And I would say, you know, the other thing, too, is, is the biggest sector, growing sector in Peterborough, the service sector, it is notoriously probably the most precarious kind of employment. Um, low, low wages, um, you know, sort of scheduling issues, a lot of insecurity. And so, you know, some of those positions that aren't being filled are probably not really attractive positions. If you've got a university degree, uh, you know, people are probably hoping that they can actually use what they've learned in school and not not serving food in a restaurant, not, not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but it's just, it's like, I, you know, I, we, we talked about jobs um, for 40 minutes or so. I, I'm always concerned about what the quality of those jobs are, too, and if there's a problem in attracting employees, um, I think that we, we need to, we need to think about um, workers as more than just a commodity or a cost. And we need to think about them as an investment in, in the work that's being done. And that means being able to pay them a living wage. And $15, $14 an hour is certainly not a living wage in this community. Um, two years ago, it was calculated to be $17.62. 
child tax credits come along, so that may bring that 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 cost down. There's a group of us who are going to work on a living wage report for 2019, um, so we'll have a better sense then. But, uh, you know, I think that um, filling some of these positions um, is partly about making them more attractive. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, I want to move on to older workers and their challenges, but before we leave the college students and the, uh, and the uh, or people, young people entering the workforce, uh, two of them live in my house, uh, I should mention. Uh, no, well, one is living in Toronto, another is in Toronto. So I have some interest in this, uh, some skin in the game. If we could, the, the five of us here, uh, were put in front, into a classroom at Fleming or Trent and asked for our advice on careers, what would we say? Well, I'll take that one on uh, just to get it started and because I'm brave. <laughs> um, I would say, and it goes back to what Paul was saying earlier, is to, is to recognize that you have a role to play, that the half of that bridge is your responsibility, that you, you do need to, to, uh, to get out there. Just a small example, the Chamber offers uh, five free memberships to business students at uh, Fleming and at Trent. One person in 10 years has ever, ever <laughs> taken it up and wow. thrown up at an event. And these are, you know, these are business students who really need to get themselves out there. It's not for everybody. It's not a panacea, but I think there's what, whatever you need to do, put yourself out there. And I, I, I gave my daughter a bit of a cheap shot before. She's definitely creating her own situation. She is employed. She's graduated. She works at the University of Glasgow. And she has started more things, uh, essentially in the social media realm in Scotland. She's created the Scottish Historical Society. She does the podcast. She um, uh, created a blog called Pubs and Publications. She's got Twitter followers by the thousands. She was the Pubs and Publications. I like it. Being clients in politics, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, um, she was uh, speaking today uh, at Bannockburn at a historical mm-hmm. conference uh, there. Uh, so, But the point I'm trying to make is that she's put herself out there right. and she's realized that if it's going to be, it's up to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I will follow the exact same thing. I was at um, uh, RBC Future Launch at Fleming two or three weeks ago, and there's probably 40 students there, and uh, every single one of them came up and asked, what, 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 if you were me, what would you do? And the two things that I always fall back on are um, opportunity and problem solve. So keep your eyes open for opportunities because they're around every corner. What I do now when I was 19, 20 years old, I would never, never thought I was doing, and it was simply because I started problem solving and an opportunity came about. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think, once again, I went to school for business and economics. I had no idea what I was going to do when, when I grew up. I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I think <laughs> you're doing it quite well. But, but people, I think, put far too much pressure on themselves when they're 16, 20, 23 to, to find what they're going to do for the rest of their life and just accept that, you know, there's an opportunity today and it's probably going to be a new one later on in life. But just uh, take it and do your best and kick butt. Well, and I think to add to your point, Paul, is that um, we don't really know what the jobs are going to be in five, ten years, right? They're constantly evolving. And so I think it is about keeping your eyes open, watching for opportunities, but finding the things that you're passionate about 
not everybody wants to be a business owner. Some of us worked in the, want to work in the public sector. And so I think that in terms of the kinds of employment that probably are still safe down the road or anything that really is about that human interaction work that needs to happen that can't be replaced yet by a robot. Um, and um, if there are jobs that are being replaced by robots, then you might want to actually start learning how to do that tech stuff, right, and know how to build those robots. That's probably where the jobs are. Okay. Now, in my work as a career coach, uh, I encounter many job seekers in their 50s and early 60s who, who are not ready to retire. They can't afford to retire in some cases, uh, or even if they can, they have much more to contribute, yet they are discouraged by the lack of employment op- options available to them. What needs to happen in our local economy in order to improve the job prospects for these uh, sort of mid-late career uh, job seekers? What can be done? Eliminate ageism. <laughs> it's a really simple thing. Um, I think that there's, uh, you know, we, we, we have such a youth culture that we place a lot of emphasis and, and importance, I think, on um, what youth bring to the table. But um, there's, you know, that, that sort of what I call magical mix between time and experience is invaluable and priceless and to have an older worker um, who has that kind of experience to come to the table you know they're, they're going to have all of these different opportunities and experiences through their life that they can bring and inform uh, the work that they do but and I think it's it's terribly devalued and and I think for those uh, older workers who are in in employment right now it, there's not a very good job of mining what's going on in those brains um, for the next generation and yeah. and um, it's 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 lot a lot of lost knowledge and wisdom mm. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think there certainly are, are, are pockets of prosperity if you think of employers like um, Home Depot, for example. They love they love older workers. You know, my favorite place in the world is the uh, hardware store in Lakefield, uh, and they've got a you know a good solid complement of older workers because they know what they're talking about. Right. Um, Workforce Development Board um, has been very helpful as far as, you know, sort of helping me bone up for this conversation. And they have a report called Managing Different Generations. So there's certainly uh, help out there for employers if they're actually looking or if they're struggling. Uh, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of research done on the difference uh, in the generations um, and how to uh, how to uh, to deal with them. I also just want to say while I've got a moment, um, just to to you know, there's dealing with older generations. There's also dealing with younger generations, and I think we all have to agree to stop saying the word millennials. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> it's become, especially for millennials, a really offensive term because yes. it's been thrown around in, a, in very unfair ways. You can look at some data and slice and dice it and, you know, maybe come up with some differences in the generations and the X's and the Y's. And, you know, it's, I think it's really unfair. Uh, I think people are people. Uh, yeah. No matter how old they are, I think, like I said earlier, there's nuances, but I think in the end we've got to, we've got to approach it with a little bit more sophistication. Now, one of the... Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I hate to go back to the idea of always talking about entrepreneurship, but I, I would defer to Stu on this as well, but I think um, 
folks over 50 is the largest expanding um, group of entrepreneurs right now. Um, now, and that doesn't mean someone starting a, a multi-million dollar business. It's about people actually having the, the security in their life to find a niche that they've probably fallen in love with with passion over their lifetime. And it could be as small as, you know, starting a, you know, an Etsy shop or something really small, but that's still being an entrepreneur in your own way. So yeah, I, I think that's a real focus, and I think people need to have the... Um, you know, the wherewithal to know that they can do that. And I think over, that's one of the biggest insecurities for people over 50 is they don't think they can do it because they're too old and they're, not, you know, at a point in their life when they can start something. But 100% you can start something and you should definitely do it if you're passionate about it. Now, one of the uh, unfortunate, this is going to sound a bizarre statement, but one of the unfortunate consequences of uh, the demographic uh, situation we find ourselves in is that, um, well, as my eye travels around the studio, we have Hussein in his 20s and uh, some people in between and me at 75. Uh, and, and isn't that great? And, and don't we all want to have a rich, long life? But one of the demographic uh, consequences of what's going on, and we see it, of course, in Peterborough, is these long lives have to be paid for. <laughs> people need groceries, people need water, et cetera, et cetera. So where I'm going with this is, what about the older workers who are 65 and over, who still have some gas in the tank, for whom an active retirement is a desirable option? And again, through my uh, career coaching, I see some of these things. And I've heard so often the following statement, all I want is a part-time position where I can earn between 20 and 30K a year. Well, what options are available to them? What what can we tell them? <laughs> Uber. <laughs> I was going to say, the on-demand economy is one of them, and then there's also, again, being self-employed, if there's like small projects that they can work on, and I hate sure. to keep bringing it back, but that's something that pretty much valid through whatever age you're working on, right? Now, let me date myself thoroughly. I have been told, and maybe the people in the room who have a greater history, I've only been in Peterborough since uh, the year 2000, but I've been told that many decades ago, there was a GE bus that would weave through Peterborough, picking up workers in the morning, because there were so many people in Peterborough worked at GE. Now, of course, the manufacturing sector is in decline, uh, small businesses thriving. How can job seekers access the full array of opportunities presented by the small business sector via the DBIA, via the innovation cluster, clean tech commons, the chamber, etc.? How can all that entrepreneurial activity be accessed, whether you're a young job seeker or you're semi-retired? I think Paul mentioned something earlier about just getting out there and talking to people. That's one way to do it because, I mean, I had to jump into events that I had no idea or no clue about to start getting my foot in there and kind of understanding where to go from there. But also making use of, like, organizations that you mentioned, whether it's the DBIA, to understand, you know, probably they have an idea of what's going on in terms of who's hiring. Uh, The innovation cluster is another space where, you know, there's so many innovators, but they're always looking for somebody. Like, I'm always looking for tech people, or, you know, somebody's always looking for somebody. So those are great spaces to, to look into as well. Yeah. Right. Now, according to the uh, employment counselors uh, stopped by Fleming Crew uh, a few weeks ago, the three sectors that are hiring right now in Peterborough are education, health care, and hospitality. 
I'm wondering if we could look forward and, and this very substantial document from the uh, uh, Workforce Development Board has some of the answers. If we could look forward into the future, where might the opportunities be in two, three, five, ten years? What do we see coming down the horizon? Hi, uh, going back to the document that we were reading at the start of this before we got on air here about the, the largest employers in Peterborough, I, I think the real expansion opportunities are in those small to medium-sized businesses. I think those ones at the top that you're talking about um, in terms of healthcare uh, and a lot of the service industries are, are always going to be up at the top. And I think, once again, they will probably be at the top and, and grow. But I think if you would look um, at the other largest employers, it's gone far gone in the days of any people company that has a thousand staff you're probably going to be in that 100 to 250 at you know at the really thriving businesses but hopefully a lot more of them so to me that's where I, I would see the, the, the future of a place like Peterborough a place that a small business can start and grow from three to five and hopefully get up to once again a success story like Flying Colors or um, you know, Drain Brothers or McCloskey or those types of businesses that, that have really thrived over the last few years and grown so much Right. So, well, I think that um, I think the predictions are certainly accurate uh, and and reflected by the amount that it has changed. The the base of six thousand employees at GE are, are certainly gone. But yes, it's healthcare, hospitality, uh, administration. Um, you know, the public sector is uh, certainly the the largest pillar of employment that we have here in uh, in Peterborough, as well as manufacturing, tourism, agriculture, and and a burgeoning um, entrepreneurial um, tech um, culture. But I mean, that that data is out there. But if you set that aside for just a second, I think the point that I that or that the sense that I get is that there's a fairly significant move towards localization um, and whether you call it sort of an anti-globalization, anti-capitalist, you can call it whatever you want, there's still this really nice move towards localization and they're, they're, it makes the problems smaller. You've got smaller companies employing, you know, relatively small numbers of people and so that problems like getting people to work through public transit or or an alternative solution to that, getting people from the county in to so that they can take a job in Peterborough, um, being flexible as to you know, sort of how you employ people and when and how much they get paid are becoming more and more localized and I think that much more solvable and you know for the chamber and I think probably everybody in this room uh, we want to be part of that conversation because I think that there's obviously a role for business to play in how that how that works itself out uh, you know precarious uh, employment we want to be at that table we want to have that conversation because we not only have a perspective but we have a lot to learn about about you know what what needs to be done and, and where this is all going so that's my philosophical speech for tonight Paul yeah and to follow up on that too like to me it's a, it's a positive thing for places like Peterborough and Peterborough to, to Steve's point I think it's one of those hyper local places that people are incredibly passionate about our city uh, from a commercial real estate perspective we get um, inquiries all the time of that you know small to mid-sized business that really wants to locate here um, mostly because of the staff perspective because they want their team to put down roots and not leave where I think in the larger urban centers 
you can walk across the street and get a different job. So I think, once again, to expand on Stu's point, I think Peterborough is perfectly poised right now because of that idea of, of our community um, mindset and how people treat each other in this town, our city, I guess, um, to allow ourselves to expand in the future for those types of businesses where they want their team to actually stay and be part of the community and grow and thrive. Well, and with that, uh, a wonderful wrap. So thank you so much, Paul. Hussein, Monique, and Stuart for, uh, Stuart for, uh, for coming by and taking the time to do this. And just before we sign off, this has been our seventh program of 2019, the winter, and our last show for the, uh, for the winter season on Trent Radio. So please join us at a new day and time slot for the spring-summer session that will start uh, first week of May here at 92.7 on your dial. And as soon as we know, our program slot will post it on, on the website below. And if you miss us on the radio, you can always download the show the next day at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. So, panel, thanks again, and until spring, when the snow will go, this is Bill Templeton.